Welcome to Indoctrination, a weekly conversation series about protecting yourself from systems of control. I'm your host, Rachel Bernstein. Hi, everyone. I want to be able to talk about something today on my own, something that I will be offering actually in two parts. This is the first part. I've done some videos and some seminars and workshops on narcissism and narcissistic abuse. Being in a relationship with a narcissist, how to leave a person with that personality style, and also the impact it has on those within that relationship. And because of the work I have done and now because of the podcast, the emails and texts and calls I have been receiving as of late, many and many of them, have been encouraging me to collect a lot of this information to offer it to you on the podcast. Some of you who have seen the videos I've put together might recognize some of the information, but of course I've added more and I've updated a lot of the information as well. So what is a relationship with a narcissist like? In, in its obvious forms and also in its subtle forms. It's good to understand what to watch out for and also so that you can better diagnose the relationship you may be in at this very moment. Because someone is selfish or interested in just getting their needs met or interrupts you while you're talking, seems to put themselves first every once in a while, that's not narcissism. That might be selfish. That might be bad social behavior. But it's not narcissism. Narcissism is greater, it's different, it's more severe. So to be able to listen to this and also have a sense that for some of you, you may have been raised by somebody who was a narcissist, somebody who left you with the symptoms and after effects of having been raised by a narcissist, which sometimes actually leads you into relationships with narcissists later on because you know what that's like. You know what that relationship's like. You may not like it. It might not be healthy, but it's familiar. Some people also talk about getting involved in work and having their boss be a narcissist and that that job then took over their lives in every way. It had to be the most important thing in their lives. And they felt like their life, their family, their children, their time, their health was less important than their work, than their devotion to the person in charge at their work like they were a puppet when someone else was pulling their strings without their knowledge or consent, certainly not something they signed up for when they took that job. There are a lot of similarities between narcissists and sociopaths, and one being that they are not able to be in an actual relationship. So even when I talk about being in a relationship with narcissists, it, it's actually kind of an impossibility. Because according to how I feel about a relationship, there should be equality. There should be mutual respect and interest in each other and open communication and safety and one where both people are valued equally. They don't necessarily care about the pain they're inflicting on you or the life they're taking away from you that you had before, though. And that's when you know something is off. That's when you know you're potentially in a relationship with a narcissist. And for the narcissist, playing mind games is the norm. It's how they operate day in and day out. 
And for some, it's actually sport, sport that they enjoy to see how they can fine tune their skills in each relationship they have and use you as a testing ground for trying out different techniques of manipulation. And many actually enjoy causing you to have a negative reaction just for the sake of them knowing they have that power over you. Your sadness or frustration or you trying to prove your innocence doesn't matter much to them. What matters more is the size of your reaction. That's what gives them satisfaction because then they know they have that impact on you. What many people don't know is that narcissists will seek out people who they have a sense they might be able to control. And if they're not sure at the beginning, they will test you. You don't realize you're being tested. And it is one of those times then when in the short term, it makes your life easier when you pass the test, but it makes your life harder in the end. And what I mean by that is that if somebody controlling you tests you and you pass their test, They'll be happy with you in the moment, or at least not angry with you. And sometimes that's the best that you can get. But the long-term impact of you passing that test and passing other tests after that is that you then are in a relationship with someone who knows that you will go along to get along. You will agree to not spend the holidays with your family in order to stay home with them. You'll agree to a whole variety of different things you wouldn't normally agree to. And you might actually miss being with your family, but you know it was more important and it made your life easier to make the person you were with happy. The person who seems to be actually easily made unhappy. So you have started to mind yourself. You've started to be more careful. And so the long-term damage in these relationships, of course, is that you lose so much. You lose significant moments with your loved ones. You lose significant relationships, friendships. You go through the motions during these times, sometimes feeling sad, feeling guilty, and also feeling like you have to lie to everyone in your life to let them know that this was your decision. And you're choosing to be with your partner from here on, maybe during what used to be time spent with your family. The narcissist will usually not make those calls for you also, but instead have you make them. So the message about not being able to come to whatever it is the family thing was needs to come from you. So you're the bad guy. And that's part of the game. There's also this additional game that can be played there that I've seen, which is that sometimes the narcissist will say, oh, I really wanted to be able to come or I was really encouraging my partner to spend time with you, her family, but she just decided that it was more important to be with me. So there's nothing I can do to argue with her about it. They're very good at that kind of manipulation, at kind of throwing you under the bus. They sometimes get power from seeing what they can make you do as well and seeing how much you will sacrifice for them. And they're not sorry about it and they don't feel guilty about it. The tricky part is that you might not realize that it's a game because that's not the way you live your life. And as I've mentioned in the past, we assume that what's true for us is true for other people. And controllers will get away with things for far too long sometimes because 
you are being treated in a way that you would never treat another person. So you believe the messages that the person will never do it again, or that maybe the way they treated you, well, even though you didn't like it, it could have been for your benefit and you just misunderstood. And they come up with a lot of justifications that make you believe that the person you're with has the same level of standards and conscience and sensitivity as you do in a relationship. And at least you buy that at the beginning. A lot of people talk to me about how when they first met the person controlling them, he would say, even though I'll use a particular gender term, even though it happens with women and it happens with men, but again, he will say something wonderful. He will be charming, confident, often the life of the party, seems secure, charismatic, and you might feel specially chosen to be with this person, like you're on a high. But what you don't know is just as the highs are highs, the lows are going to be very low. This will be a mercurial relationship at best. And if it seems too good to be true at first, as they say, it usually is. It's often what people say about cult groups and being in a relationship with a narcissist is very much like being in a one-on-one -on -one cult, which I will talk about later. As most cult leaders, well, not all, but most are narcissists. As you're drawn into this relationship feeling good, you eventually start to see signs that something is wrong. Something is off about this person. And when you first met them, you may not have seen it. But for a lot of people, they start to remember, actually, that the first time they met this person, they kind of were charmed by them. At the same time, they found something about them off, too much in a way, or troubling, but they ignored it. And I've had people say to me that when they first met the person they wound up being with, they didn't find them the least bit attractive or appealing, even sometimes a little creepy or too slick. They seem to have all the answers. Their smile was too big. And the other part was that they were all consuming right away. Sometimes people who find themselves with a narcissist feel so special feel again like they could be with anyone, but they've chosen to be with them. So they feel so good about it. But sometimes they will also start to feel insecure about themselves and not know why. They won't realize that along with this high and along with being with this person special who's so charismatic, this person is probably making digs digs that they're not quite noticing in an overt way. They're making little comments like tiny insults, patronizing comments, ones that were to make them question their own honesty, perhaps their own trustworthiness, mm, like they don't know themselves well and, and maybe aren't such good people and maybe are not so smart and Maybe they're not so attractive, but many times the narcissist will sweep them back up into this charming life and charming relationships so that they abandon these thoughts for a moment and get caught up again in the intense emotion, like taking a drug, kind of getting a fix and forgetting about the other stressors in your life. That is 
until it wears off. And then you get your next fix. This is often how it is with a narcissist. Eventually, people will start to see signs of anger and inflated ego, high drama for the sake of high drama, the person they're with not being honest, not necessarily kind to them or to their children, to their animals, not caring about others. And they'll see signs also that they feel entitled to do and say whatever they would like to do to anyone, really. And you can also find out very early on that they cannot tolerate being questioned. Even when you say something subtle to them, like, oh, I was expecting you home at six and now it's 6.15. Is everything okay? And all you meant was, is everything okay? Just like you asked the question. But instead, it will be seen as a challenge and as an insult and be met with a counterstrike where you will learn not to ask that question again, no matter how innocent it was. And by counterstrike, I mean, why would you ask me a question like that? Do I not have the right anymore to come home 15 minutes late? Are you accusing me of being up to something? Are you my parent or My job is important, and I don't necessarily want to have to justify how long I spend at the office. Or you might not really understand it anyway, even if I did explain it to you. These are all perfect examples of the rules only applying to you and not the one who is controlling you. So the narcissist is allowed to be very angry with you if you are 15 minutes late. And not only ask you questions, but make solid accusations without you having had a chance to talk at all that you then have to dig your way out of and work hard to prove that you're innocent and you came home 15 minutes late for no reason. But that moment will stay with you and you will remember that you should watch yourself from here on in and make sure that you come home exactly when expected. And then the other part is that narcissists will very often take out on you things that have happened to them so that if they're passed up for a promotion or something bad happens to them in their life, it's everyone else's fault. People were conspiring against them. The person who promoted somebody else over them is a fool. And they have such jealousy about people who accomplish more, people who seem better in other people's eyes, people who seem more qualified, that they will be very angry with you about the smallest things just to let off steam about that. And you also learn that you have to go along with all of it. You have to agree with it all, even though you probably know deep down or not even so deep down, pretty much on the surface, why they may have been passed up for a promotion because they get in fights with people at work. They often do. It can also happen that narcissists, while looking like they have it all together and they're capable on so many levels, that I sort of see them as this walking defense mechanism. They're defending against a fragile core. They're defending against feeling less than anyone else. Anyone else in their life can make them feel less than. And so everyone is a potential threat and it's all too easy for them to feel less than. So if they do feel questioned or if they get demoted or if 
They're the second ones to be called upon at a meeting as opposed to the first. Or someone else's appearance was complimented instead of theirs. All these little things that might not have any impact on you are going to be seen as an attack by them on their core. And it's something called a narcissistic injury. And then the impulse is to injure you back or injure that person back by doing the thing that will bother them and hurt them the most. And in a situation with you, it would probably mean berating you and testing you, making you make more sacrifices, or by being silent and ignoring you, whatever makes you feel injured, whatever makes you feel worried or on edge, and the punishment that you will receive for something you didn't realize you had done or something you actually didn't do, is going to be intense and unexpected. And if you ask why it's happening, there will very often be the response, you know why. Truth is, you don't know. And they won't often tell you. That's part of the game, to keep you guessing and to keep you trying to understand, to keep you on edge. And that is when you start going down the rabbit hole. Things don't make sense suddenly. And when things don't make sense, you get off kilter and you can get dependent on the person you're with in the hope that the next thing they say, well, make it all make sense. But it doesn't usually. They were happy with me a half an hour ago and now they're accusing me of being someone that should never be wasting their time, someone they should never be trusting someone who will never fully understand them and accept them and love them, someone who doesn't care, has never shown that they care. But as soon as they feel better, you will be able to go back to being kind of off the witness stand and being innocent again. You have just weathered a storm, but you didn't know what caused it and you didn't know what stopped it. And it's upsetting and again, intense. And then, without warning, it starts all over again. And that becomes your life. The other part that starts to make you feel like you're going down the rabbit hole is when there's gaslighting for the purpose of taking control over you. And the term gaslight has become a little more popular and it comes from the play and the movie Gaslight. And examples of it are things like if the person you're with has done something to you that truly bothered you, and you ask them about it, or you show some emotion around it, they'll say you're imagining things. They'll say, I never said that. They will tell you that you're being too intense or too sensitive. Or if they do admit that they did something wrong to you, well, they'll say, oh, I was just joking. Where's your sense of humor? Or they'll say, oh, you know what? You're getting so confused so often. I know that's what you think you remembered, but that's really not what happened. You know, you might need some help with that because I think something's wrong. You're not thinking clearly. Or they'll ask you why you're so defensive. Or they'll accuse you of trying to manipulate them by bringing it up and that you can't then be trusted. And then I hear this a lot. I only did that to you because of all of the things you've done to me. It was somehow payback. But something else that people find crazy making is that 
narcissists will very often rewrite your history with each other to reflect how they want to seem and how they want it to seem. And it usually is very self-focused. They will remember themselves as being people who have always been there and been good to you and have always provided you with a good life and have been patient and have been tolerant of you. And that you just have decided to not be happy with them and you have decided to not appreciate them. And it's an absolute revision. You can't argue with it either. But just as they reflect back on themselves having been wonderful while you somehow disappointed them or failed them, then there's this other piece added to it that makes it additionally confusing, like it needed to be any more confusing. They're often not reflective about your experience in the past with them. They often don't look back in a way that feels sensitive to the damage they've caused because then they might have to feel guilty or responsible or change in some way. And they don't want to, and they can't handle it. So narcissists by and large usually stay focused on the present and the future, not the past. And again, only the past, if they do feel they were wrongly persecuted or that they were wronged by someone and misunderstood for their greatness by so many of the people in their lives who have often not seen their greatness. There's an example of this. I remember a man who I spoke to who came to me looking so sad. He had been in a marriage for 12 years with, turned out to be, a narcissist. They had two children and divorced just one year before he came to see me. And as awkward as it was for him and as difficult as it was for him, he wanted to make sure to go and be at his kids' sports games, knowing he would see his ex there and he would see his ex with her new partner, actually not so new, the partner she started dating while they were still married that he wasn't allowed to be upset about. And he wasn't allowed to be rude to this man as well. He was supposed to be kind to him. And he had helped to work on the house that they lived in for many years so that it would feel like a home, a good home for him and his wife and their children. And he did whatever she asked and added to the house, even if he didn't see there was a need to add whatever that was to the house. He did whatever she wanted. He even painted the house and repainted it colors that she changed her mind about over and over again. And then she actually often hated the house and would complain about it. And why wasn't he working harder so they could afford a bigger place? She was working too, but somehow it was his fault. And so she would also berate him for not finishing a project she had given him that morning, even though they had both left for work, but he was still in charge. But he tried as hard as he could in that home to try to make it joyful for his children. He loved hearing his children be joyful in that house. He loved building the swings outside that he could play with with them all summer long while she would go out with friends that he eventually found out were more than friends. And then when it came time for the divorce, she kicked him out of the house. He didn't have any more fight in him so he didn't fight to keep it. And the house that she said she was always miserable with was now the house that she was keeping and the house that he was never allowed to come back into. Or she said that she would call the police to say that he was trespassing or worse, that he was stalking her. 
The reason I tell you the story is because of this next part. It's a perfect example of the narcissist not looking back and the impact that has because the people who are with a narcissist are people who do think about the past. They're often feeling so repeatedly injured by that person. And they remember the times they were injured. And they're not able to say it out loud. So they collect these moments of hurt in their heads and they try to make sense of it all. And the times that things were turned around and they were blamed for everything, they again are trying to have the sort of inner dialogue. Like, was it my fault? Is there something I could have done better? Is there something I could have done differently? People, again, who are narcissistic are often drawn to people who are empathic and kind and sentimental and giving and forgiving. And the kind of people who remember, the kind of people who remember happy moments and also remember the moments when they were hurt. So their son's game was running into overtime and his ex needed to leave early because she needed to go somewhere with her new boyfriend. And the ex-husband said that was fine that even though it was her weekend with the kids, so she probably needed to have made other arrangements, he would wait till the end of the game and then take the kids back to his old house. He knew that it was going to make him teary to see it. He would sometimes drive by just to remember the good times there and would always end up crying. After he agreed to take the kids back home to that house, she went to take a piece of paper out of her purse and a pen and started writing something down and handed him a piece of paper. And he looked down and he saw what was written on it. It was his old address. He had lived there for 12 years and was only out of it for one year. But she gave him the address as though she didn't remember that he had lived there too. He knew he couldn't say anything like you've got to be kidding me. Have you completely forgotten our history so much that you don't remember that we moved into that house together and started a family in that house? And just because you were dating people for the last few years and were focused on other people, I was still there. That was still my house. I was taking care of all the tasks you wanted me to take care of to make that house a home. And I stayed there until I got brave enough to file for a divorce and make that change. But it was another one of those dialogues in his head. He knew the firestorm that would ensue if he said any of those things out loud because he would have been called abusive and many other things he had been called for many years. He didn't want to hear it. So he just folded the piece of paper and put it in his pocket and turned to her and said, thanks, I'll bring them home. He was the one whose heart was hurt because he was the one who remembered and was sentimental. She clearly was not and could very coldly cut off her emotions and not remember. What I mentioned just before that he could have been called abusive and many other things. Well, here are the many other things that used to happen to him and happen very often in those moments where he would have had every right to be upset and baffled and insulted and he would have every right to say something, but he would have been accused of judging her using that moment in public to shame her, using that moment where everyone should be focused on the children to take care of his selfish emotional needs, he would have been accused of not being able to let it go and 
not being a man is what she often said to him. And he would have been called pathetic for being so sentimental. And if he had gotten very upset, the chances also high that she would have said that, oh, come on, she was just kidding. And why did he have to take everything so seriously? And can he take a joke, even though he could usually tell when she said that, that she was quite sincere and not joking at all. But it hurt him so to know that their life together was such a distant memory of hers. The past was the past. And it would make things so much more convenient for her if he could just not remember it too. People are often asked in retrospect why they stayed with this person who was not good for them or kind to them. And I actually will get into that during another talk soon because I've been asked many times to actually cover that subject. And I will do that. But in the meantime, I want to say that those people who are in relationships with people who are abusing their power, well, they just get into how they can survive that day, that moment. They sometimes stop thinking about leaving and even thinking that they could handle the stress of it. They're too afraid. They're used to watching their backs. And people will go often into survival mode rather than escape mode. And when you stay in survival mode, you have to figure out how to manage your own emotions and manage your partner's emotions and just get through the next hour without a problem. Narcissists will very often feel jealous of whatever time you spend with your friends or your family. They will want you to look down on your family in some way to make it easier for you to disconnect from them. And they'll be jealous when you spend time even with your children because it's time they wanted for themselves. And if they see the children are relating better to you or enjoying themselves with you more than they enjoy themselves with him or her, it becomes a competition. And it's a competition they're losing, which makes them again feel injured and they will fight back. And they'll need to be better. They'll need to be the more fun parent or they'll need to put you down as a parent in front of your children or behind their backs or behind your back. And now we know that as parental alienation and thank goodness that has become a legally recognized term where you're thrown under the bus in the eyes of your children just out of sheer competition. They may get jealous if you spend time even with your pet, if you greet the dog or the cat or any pet you have before you greet them or in a warmer way than you greeted them, or if you put food in their bowl before you put dinner on the table for them, if you show them any more love or caring, then you won't be realizing it, but you will be triggering the narcissistic injury. And they will let you know. They will give you a very hard time. And some people I know have come home and have their pets be gone because the narcissist couldn't handle being jealous of a pet getting more attention. And you won't get credit for being a good parent and having a nice bedtime with your kids or you won't be praised for being a kind person to your animals because all of those things took time away and attention away from them. Being with a narcissist is like having a conversation with someone who isn't listening to you at all, but is just waiting for you to finish what you're saying so they can tell their story. And they look away while you're talking even, and you realize that you've lost your audience and they don't care. But... Then you learn behavior 
that will keep them happy. You either don't tell your story at all, or you keep it very, very short. Or they will put you down as having gone on and on and on and sharing something that's totally irrelevant and a waste of their time. And I remember also there was a new mom who shared with me that her husband would yell at her whenever she was nursing their baby because he didn't like the fact that they were having this warm time together. And the baby then had a very hard time and would unlatch while he was nursing. And then the baby would get hungry and that was met with additional tension because then she would need to go to take care of this hungry baby and he would give her a hard time. Why is she letting the baby take over their lives? Does she love the baby more? And in that instance, yeah, she did. I want to also talk about the release of cortisol here, the adrenaline that runs through people's systems when they don't know what they're walking into, either when they come home or when they're already home and the narcissistic partner arrives at home, but they don't know if things are going to go well or if things are going to go very badly. And if they're going to be given a speech about something they supposedly did or said or didn't do or didn't say, didn't do the right way. And the narcissist can sometimes harbor feelings throughout the day that then get unleashed as soon as they get home. And so what happens is that when people have a home like that, there is no more of that kind of feeling of a home being an oasis from the stressors in your life. It is a minefield. People talk to me about coming home and seeing their partner's car in the driveway or coming home and looking up and seeing the light on in the bedroom and knowing that their partner was home or being home and hearing the key turn in the door and feeling dread, having to steal themselves for that moment where they were going to see their partner and not know what was going to happen. But they were pretty sure from past experiences that whatever was going to happen was not going to be good. And it was going to be probably intense and very long. It might go for a whole night, a whole speech that would go until dawn, mm, something that would make them feel like they would have to do a lot of explaining and justifying and tolerate just being accused of things. And it would make them feel very much alone. And it would be another example of them having so many things they wish they could say out loud that just remained in their heads when they found themselves out loud just saying, okay, I understand, I'm sorry. And something else that happens is that someone who is narcissistic does not give to you, but they do expect from you. They expect compassion. They expect forgiveness. They expect that you will remember only the good and forget all the bad they've done. And they will often project all of their issues and all of their problems onto you. And that somehow you were guilty of causing them to happen or of not protecting them from having it happen. And you will be often seen as the manipulative one. If you show any emotion, and again, then you will learn 
to keep everything inside your head, to keep everything private. What's so fascinating to me about all of this beyond a lot of other things is that when some narcissists are saying that everything was your fault or someone else's fault, some of them actually believe this as they're saying it. Sometimes it's not a manipulation. Sometimes it's such a well-defended, fragile ego that they actually believe it when they say it. But I've seen that some people are just very, very well-defended and know they have to pretend to seem like it's all about you and clearly not about them because then they know about themselves. They couldn't tolerate it any other way. So people who have been with narcissists will often say that they couldn't somehow do anything right and they never knew how to respond because every one of their responses was wrong. Here's an example. Two women I was working with who were partners said they wanted to meet with me because there were so many times that they just didn't seem to be able to communicate. The one who seemed much more in charge was trying to connect with me in a way where she was clearly wanting me to see her as someone who had just been so patient with this partner who was always getting it wrong. And the partner who was always getting it wrong was sincerely hoping that couples work would help her find a way to get it right. But I could see, and I knew early on, there was no way for that to happen because when the first one who was the controller would get mean and the other one would react to it, the one reacting to it was running out of ways to react to it and felt like she was left without any ways to get it right. And that's true because if she seemed confused that her partner was mad about something that she wasn't actually mad about just the day before, then she would say something like, but I thought that'd be fine with you because yesterday it was okay. And the partner would say, what am I on trial now? Or you're trying to win something or no, that's not what was true yesterday. I just didn't show it to you. Or you just don't remember it right. Or you're just not kind of clever enough to pick up on the signs that I was giving you that it wasn't right. And so the partner who was the non-controller often felt like she was slightly losing her mind and losing her memory. And if she acted annoyed or impatient with the controlling partner for always getting upset with her, even in subtle ways, she was accused of being abusive, of attacking her. And then if the partner realized there was nothing she could say that would be right, she would then get quiet because she was at a loss for words, literally. And she would get saddened by those moments of silence because she knew that there was no way for her to make it better by saying the right thing. But when she was silent, she was accused of being manipulative and that her silence was passive aggressive. And it was a trick somehow. It was a ploy. It was a game and it wasn't going to work. And then if the partner just got sad and couldn't handle the pressure or confusion anymore and it came out in tears, well, that was even worse. Tears were a manipulation or they were seen as a sign of weakness or even worse than that, they were seen as an admission of guilt that somehow her tears showed that she was really the one at fault and she knew it. So narcissists 
have a public persona and a private persona. And with these two women, the one who was the controller actually was someone famous, someone who got a lot of accolades, had a lot of adoring fans, always circling around her. And people would say to the controlled partner, oh, you must feel so lucky to be with her. But she knew she couldn't say what was really true. What she did feel and what really turned things around for her, though, was that she came in one time by herself without her partner knowing. And she came in and she said, I'm empty. And I asked her what she meant. And she said, I have emptied myself to fill up somebody else. But every morning I start back at square one. And instead of her having something inside of her that can hold on to my support and my compliments and my patience and my forgiveness, it's like it dissipates overnight and I have to start all over again. And she was right. Every morning she had to start back at square one. And so she soon decided to leave but she knew that her narcissistic partner was going to be very angry with her about any attempt she made to show any kind of independence. They're not used to having their manipulations not work anymore. A relationship with a narcissist can last a long time and not necessarily because it's a good relationship, but because one of two things are true. They have found someone who is empathic and soft-spoken, who feels bad about something, whether or not it was their fault. Kind of that example I've given before, the person who gets bumped into and apologizes to the person who bumped into them. And they will do whatever they can to make sure that the controlling person is not unhappy with them. And narcissists love that. They're attracted to that. And they're attracted to people who are accommodating. They're attracted to people who they don't have to apologize to. And they're attracted to people where they don't actually have to change their own behavior. And they're attracted to people who will spend the rest of their day trying to justify their reactions and explain themselves and will agree that they were the cause of the whole problem to begin with. So next week, I'm going to talk about how to break free from this kind of relationship when you realize that you're in one, what steps to take that are safer than others, and how to get into a different frame of mind so that you feel stronger and more sure and more definitive and calmer and less fearful about acting on your own behalf. And I'll also talk about why people stay in these relationships, as I mentioned, as long as they do. But the first step is getting into the frame of mind needed to make that change. As they say, your mind must arrive at your destination before your life does. To be continued. And yes, even though you just heard my voice for quite some time, there is still a one more thing before you go. I know my audience well enough to know that if I don't do this part, I'm going to hear about it. So I actually did have something that I wanted to talk about briefly. 
A couple of years ago, I started telling people that when they had been involved in a relationship with a narcissist, either by virtue of being raised by one or working for one or dating one or being married to one, that their experiences were very much like having been in a cult, a one-on-one cult of sorts. And for some people, that was a helpful description because it painted a picture for them. It painted a picture of them being in a situation that could play with their minds, where somebody had taken them over without their knowledge or consent and had split them off from the rest of their world. Let me explain why that analogy seems to work to paint that picture. Being in a relationship with someone who has an insatiable need for attention and adoration means that you will matter less all the time. I can sometimes tell when somebody is in a relationship with a controlling person, when the person has needed to actually craft their life and their day around serving the needs of the other person. That person who is sort of a bottomless pit of need. When I see both of these people together, one of them, the one who is being sort of fed and given all the attention, and the one also who doesn't feel remorse about what they've done wrong, well, they seem fine, wrinkle-free, and they're very polished, and they really seem like they have it all together. And the person they're with looks haggard and tired. The person in charge has been, for lack of a better term, and maybe this seems harsh, but it's the way a lot of people have described it to me who have been in these relationships, has been an emotional parasite, so to speak. And the other person has been their host. You are drained while they are filled up and emotionally nourished, at least for the time being, at least until it wears off and then you have to start all over again. And the reason that I think it's important to create an understanding of this analogy is that There are many people who have left cults who then find themselves drawn to getting into relationships with narcissists because it's so familiar. It's what they know. It's familiar to serve the needs of somebody else. It's familiar to get into needing to ask for permission rather than making a statement about something or making a decision on their own. And it's all too familiar to judge your own value based upon how pleased another person is with you and then, therefore, the value you have to them. And it also happens in reverse. Not that this occurs all the time, but many people who find themselves in controlling environments led by difficult or mercurial or intensely critical but charismatic people grew up having a narcissist as a parent. So they were also groomed and trained to know how to play that emotionally subservient role And we as human beings gravitate towards what's familiar and a cult will certainly feel all too familiar. Yet another place where you don't get to follow your own voice, your own instincts and define what your goals are or even define your sense of self. And this is not at all to blame those who kind of go out of the frying pan into the fire in either direction. It's to let you know that sometimes it will be all too easy to do so. And therefore, you want to find out about what was unhealthy in the relationship or in the community that you were in before, so you don't gravitate towards that or invite that into your life again. 
so that you can also start to see that you are deserving of more, of better. It can be very maddening and depressing for people to sit back and see that they might be in a different place now with a different person, but they know this feeling all too well and they're reliving their old life again. And they're getting into surviving, actually, rather than living. And so a lot of people will say that they spend a lot of their childhood and early adulthood not really being able to figure out who they were because they were so busy tending, again, to the insatiable needs of somebody else. And they haven't learned how to be proud of themselves, have an internal guide that tells them that they're doing a good job. Instead, they sort of defer to the other person. They focus on another person who's in charge of them to define who they are and also to tell them how they should feel about themselves. It's a very disorienting life. And it's so important to take time away from that and to try, if you can, to be brave enough to take that time away so that you develop a sense of self, even if it makes the person in charge of you unhappy with you for doing so. A woman I spoke with recently who came to see me was raised in a family with a narcissistic father who then sent her to an unaccredited boarding school that was based on some very troubling psychological philosophy of digging into your emotions even when you were a young child and blaming yourself completely as the one getting in the way of yourself and your success all the time and never being able to be angry or resentful towards anyone else. Well, of course, the father would send her to a school like this. And it left her getting into eventually a marriage with somebody who unfortunately was all too willing to define her and redirect blame back on her and do everything that was basically familiar to her. And when she was about to turn 40, she suddenly remembered a statement that was taught at this school to her that if people didn't know what they wanted to be or to do by the time they were 40, then it was too late. I don't know why that was a statement. And in fact, I don't agree with it at all, but it's something she remembered with some trepidation. So at the time of her 40th birthday, she actually went to a career counselor. I referred her to go to someone who could offer her some ideas of what she might want to do. But it was in that moment that she realized how she hadn't developed a sense of self. And the career counselor noticed how she was not able to answer questions, even about what she liked and what mattered to her, and what she thought she would enjoy, or what she thought she was good at, or what strengths she had. And she also noticed that the woman just kept reversing it, asking her questions in response, like, I don't know what I want to do. What do you think I should do? I don't know what I'm good at. What do you think I should be good at? What do you think I would be good at? And I don't know if I'm reliable enough to take on a good job and trustworthy enough to do a good job. What do you think? So the career counselor said, I actually think that I'm sending you back to work with Rachel for a little while longer. And then you're welcome to come back to me. But it's hard for me to help define what you might like to do if you don't know who you are 
And if you don't trust your strengths and are not sure, even if you're trustworthy and should be hired by anybody. <sighs> so the woman had signed a release so that the career counselor and I could be in contact with each other because we were both trying to help her move forward in her life in different ways. And I got a call from the career counselor letting me know that she wanted to be helpful to this woman, but that she was sending her back to work with me for a while. And she ended her message by saying the following. It was very sad, actually, to meet with her. She was a wonderful woman, and she showed up on time. She came prepared to take notes. She was personable and bright. But I couldn't get her to make a definitive statement about her strengths and about her wants. It's like someone has gotten into her head. Well, that was well said. That's precisely what's happened. Someone actually, well, more than one person, got into her head. And unfortunately, they were still residing there, hanging out there, even though they weren't invited anymore, and even though she was trying hard to kick them out. And eventually it happened. After a few years and a lot of confidence building and a lot of work to hear her own voice louder than theirs and to have her voice be positive and drown out their negative thoughts, she is now on the road to building her own life and building her own career. And in fact, recently told me that she's decided that she wants to become a career counselor for older adults to help them find their way. Talk to you next week. I'm excited to say that this podcast is now available on additional platforms. If you want to listen to Indoctrination, it's available for download on the NPR Radio Public app, YouTube, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and more. Please support Indoctrination at patreon.com slash indoctrination. We now have a big library of content that you can access with any donation. And subscribers receive bonus interviews and other cool goodies. We love hearing from you too. So send us an email at indoctrinationshow at gmail.com. Thank you for your support. And if you can't become a paid subscriber, I will be so grateful for any and all support that you show. Whether it's subscribing on SoundCloud, YouTube, or Patreon, or giving us a like on our Indoctrination Facebook page or following our Twitter and Reddit feeds. Thank you for keeping up with us and for keeping the show going. Until next time, Rachel.